Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from the Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer, and we thank you for joining us. No, I'm not. I'm Gabriel Marcotti. And this is a very special podcast. You probably may have noticed that we're coming to you a day later. That's partly because it's International Week, partly because Natalie Sawyer isn't here, and partly because today I'm joined by an old friend. And if you're a longtime listener and reader of the Times, an old friend of yours as well. Uh, He's been a key figure from Game Podcasts in the past, and he's now the chief soccer correspondent for the New York Times. Please welcome back Rory K. Smith. Today, Rory and I are going to discuss four of the bigger talking points in football at the moment, including VAR, the European Super League, other bits and bobs. We all have a tendency to talk too much because we both love the sounds of our own voices, so our producer, Charlie, will, will cut us off probably at about 10 minutes uh, or so into each talking point. But before we get into that, There was an international break. England scored 10 goals over two games uh, against the Czech Republic and um, Montenegro. It seems like this Gareth Southgate halo effect keeps going. Uh, They're fun to watch. It's exciting. But it was also certainly the game in Montenegro had another big talking point, which was the racist abuse. Right. I want to ask you because, and you guys should go back and if you can find it uh, behind the New York Times paywall. Metered, um, metered paywall. The metered paywall. Uh, please do read it. You sat down with Raheem Sterling, who there's obviously a lot more to unpack with Raheem Sterling and, and, and the treatment he's received from parts of the media and, and whatnot. We've seen this this ugliness happen before with the racism and, and stuff like that. And it's always followed by this sort of knee-jerk reaction that, well, but oh, fines aren't enough. They're all ludicrous. I'm assuming, I mean, UEFA today is exploring it. Mm-hmm. They may get a stadium ban. Is that the best solution for the time being until we can have like facial recognition like in Russia and drones to go and take, take out miscreants? Or? I think the problem is that, and it's interesting that Gareth Southgate talked about education. Raheem certainly, when I spoke to him, was of the view that you, kind of have, you, you can't just punish people and expect them to immediately change their minds, that that's not really how it works, that there's an element of kind of social education that has to go on. I think in the short term... If UEFA is serious, and we both, I think, like Alexander Seferin, the president of UEFA, I think I generally think that he is he's a good thing. Uh, he's not flawless, but I'm broadly pro Seferin than anti. If he's serious about wanting to to do anything about this, there, there do have to be draconian punishments. You have to at least illustrate to to the national FAs as much as anything else that look, if you can't stop this happening on your territory, you are essentially making 
it's a hostile environment for people based on the colour of their skin because you can't control your own fans. So you have to be punished seriously, whether that's with games behind closed doors or points deductions. Or to be honest, for serial offenders, just throwing them out. Just, just say, look, if this happens in, I don't know, three, five games in a row, you do not get to take part in this qualifying process. This is, this is not how this sport is run. UEFA have to be serious. But at the same time, we think it's really important to remember that, that people don't become racists when they enter football stadiums. If you are guilty of racist thoughts and you go to a football stadium, you are, that, is, that is the kind of demographic that is going to racially abuse players. So it's not that football has a racism problem, that the only people who like football are racists and all racists do is go to football matches. There's a much broader issue at stake, especially in Eastern Europe. And what's most depressing about this incident in Podorica is that it was really predictable because what Danny Rose and Raheem Sterling were both abused playing in Serbia... You see it all the time in that part, not necessarily not just the Montenegro, but in that part of the world, in Eastern Europe, it's far more prevalent. I'm, a, I'm all for the tackling the social element and stuff like that, and Southgate spoke of education. All that's fine, but I think back to the words of Demora Smith, who's the uh, former, or maybe current, but he worked for the NFL Players Association at some point, and he's like, I'm sure that in 20 years, 50 years, 100 years, through intermarriage and progress and social education... You know, maybe racism will be eradicated, but I'm not going to be around in a hundred years. I don't want to deal with it now. Yeah. And so, actually, I'm in favor of repression. I don't care why they racially abuse people, whether because they say, "Well, it's just a wind-up to get in their heads," or I, I don't, I no, don't I know. Don't, I don't, I don't know that either. You know what? But, but but it may be true for some people. I don't know. It doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is that people have a right to go to their place of work and not be racially abused. I think stadium bans are the best solution. I think they've proven to be effective. And obviously, no, they haven't eradicated racism or racist abuse, but we've seen serious problems. My difficulty with points deductions is, okay, so you deduct points. All of a sudden, they're at minus seven. Then what? Who cares? They're not qualifying anyway. Uh, Not to mention, it also gives more power to these people. Stadium ban hurts the FA. And then there's only so much an FA can do, even in the Premier League, in the most high-tech stadiums in the world with their facial recognition and their spotters and blah, 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 and all this jazz. As we both well know, it can still happen. Mm -hmm. But it hands over – it's really difficult for FAs especially to police it when it's not even their stadiums. You want to incentivize them to do it. A stadium ban certainly does that because they have to play behind closed doors, which hurts their team, and they take a financial hit. Not kicking them out of the competition, I don't think that – solves the problem. Ideally, we would punish the individuals, and that's sometimes difficult to do, but it has to have consequences now, and and I'm in favor of repression. Well, And and you're quite right that that the players who who are suffering from it won't see the benefits of an educational process that, to be honest, that you presume has been going on for quite a long time already, that, you know, gradually as a society, we're becoming more kind of conscious of these these issues and and moving away from old racial stereotypes that we had in, certainly in Britain and in Western Europe, they're becoming much more outdated. In Eastern Europe, perhaps that's a slower process, but Raheem Sterling and Danny Rose aren't going to benefit if no one in Montenegro is racist in 50 years' time. So from that point of view, yeah, you should. There has to be punishment because just waiting for it to go away isn't going to work. I think what Southgate said is right, that you have to try and do both, by the same token, as you say, like what, what's the Montenegrin FA going to do exactly. to tackle social issues in Montenegro? It's not their, it isn't their job. We're going to move on now to our, our first proper topic. Manchester United, a lot of people are taking for granted that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is set to be appointed full-time as Manchester United manager. 
I'm curious about this, not so much about Solskjaer's merits versus somebody else, because obviously when you bring that up, you're going to go, oh, who else are you going to get? You know, and, and we know if they go for Pochettino or whatever, it's going to be expensive. But I'm interested in this, the idea that back in December, they mapped out a path and, you know, they were going to bring this guy in on an interim basis, make a decision in the summer, go after the best possible people. They didn't rule him out. They were possibly going to bring in a director of football. That was widely reported as well. It seems like he comes in, he wins a bunch of games, and they're like, meh, we don't need this blueprint anymore. Everybody seems to like this guy. We're winning games. Let's go for it. Yeah, that, well, that's exactly what's happened. They've, they, they had an idea in their heads that predated the sacking of Mourinho that they needed a more modern structure. And I don't know, people, people get really bored and assume you're being kind of a... <sighs> yeah, like that. And assume you're being kind of all kind of too clever and overly modern and well it didn't you know Brian Clough didn't need a director of football although ironically he kind of had one because that's what Peter Taylor did uh, and they kind of assume that that it's it's just kind of trendiness making you say oh you should have a director of football like Atletico Madrid and I don't know Boca Juniors and all these hipster clubs so they had this idea that they wanted a director of football and I think that it makes sense because all of United's problems since Ferdi retired have basically been related to the fact that there is a disconnect between what the board will do and what the board wants and what the manager of the time Can you explode wants. another myth while you're here? Mm, I can try. You talk about board, right? Mm. And this happens all the time. happens at Chelsea too. Well, if the board want to keep... Sorry, there is no board. It's Edward it's, Wood, Richard it's Arnold. Edward Wood, Richard Arnold, and, and a couple Glazers occasionally weighing in, right? Yeah. So there is no board. Right? No, it's it not. Is, yeah, they're not having big meetings around a note table. It, it's a hierarchical structure. Yeah. There's, no, there's no Senate. Okay, this is one of the things that really bugs me that we still speak of the board when, you know, there is no board. Abramovich doesn't have a board. It's one of those slightly dishonest football shorthands which mean you don't have to name an individual. So Ed Woodward decided correctly that they needed a director of football because they've recruited... It's not that they've recruited badly, is it? They've just kind of recruited haphazardly. So they've signed some good players, but not really with a system in mind. Everything changes when they sack a manager. short term, too. A bit short term. But there's there's a few players that they've signed who've, who've done quite well, and I never quite bought this... One of the, I mean, the greatest trick that Jose Mourinho pulled was convincing people that Man United had this awful squad. And you saw fans saying, oh, yeah, well, look, you know, he can't be expected to compete with this team, the second most expensive ever established. But it was this incredible kind of cognitive dissonance where you looked at them and thought, no, do you know what? These are all really good players with one or two who are less good, good players. But you kind of bought into it because Mourinho kept telling you how bad they were. But anyway, so they had this plan for a director of football. I think what they did, bringing Solskjaer in, in the interim, and then saying, look, wouldn't look for a director of football, wouldn't look for a permanent manager. That was probably the first really good decision Man United have made in terms of how they run as a club for quite a long time. And then, yeah, they've won, he's won 14 in 19, got them to the quarterfinals of the Champions League. So why does that all go out the window? A cynic in me would say, okay, I'm Ed Woodward. You know what? Going after a big-name proven manager is going to be such a pain in the butt. i got to go deal with, with Levy or whoever. It's tricky. It's unpleasant. Everybody, the, the Glazers are very concerned with their customers, right? The United fan base. They all love Solskjaer. The players love Solskjaer. He's cheap as chips. As long as I can keep his friend Jim away from the club and the transfer activity, and yes, I'm referring to you, Jim Solbakken. Go do some Googling about that guy. Um, I'm all right. I don't need to worry about it. The Glazers will be happy because we're saving money and we got a popular guy and there's a nice bounce. Yeah. And, and, and let that, me do that. Let me go with with a popular consensus decision. But the, these are they're two separate issues. So the, the manager thing, Solskjaer has taken them by surprise. I don't think United would even... I think it, publicly they'd probably admit they weren't expecting him no, to be this good. No, but now that it's there... 
So now that it's there, there is I can I can ditch the plan to have a proper manager. No, no. So so hang on. I I I rescind my no 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 and insert a yes. So the. They are right to think, look, he's got this incredible record, he's made everyone feel great. There are still question marks about kind of what, how he compares at the very top level to people like Guardiola. You don't, I mean, even the most ardent United fan would be stretching it to sort of say, well, look, what Solskjaer's done since December means he is up there with Pep Guardiola, winner of the Champions League in 2011. It's quite a long time ago, in 2009. But nevertheless, making that appointment is, is the logical thing to do because he's in place, the players like him, he's doing well. There is no reason not to give him that job. Because Pochettino would cost a lot of money, who is the, the other candidate we keep talking about. Pochettino would cost a lot of money, and you effectively have to start again with a whole blank slate. Whereas with Solskjaer, he's kind of had these, what, seven, eight months to, to build up to it. So I think what they're doing with the manager situation is perfectly right. The fault that they're making is tying that in with the fact they need a director of football. And the impression you'd get is that Solskjaer's success has not only guaranteed him the United manager's job, which, which it absolutely should do, but it's made them think, do you know what? Maybe there was nothing wrong with the structure all along. Maybe the structure is inside our hearts. But we don't know that. They could be secretly pursuing directors of football. Well, and it's just a gap. They, they met with a headhunting firm twice before Christmas to discuss uh, Nolan Partners. Uh, who do a lot of appointments for not this just... This is Kevin Nolan's gaff, right? This is Kevin Nolan uh, and Ian Nolan, the former Sheffield Wednesday fullback, who've just set up a head... No, it's not them. They they met with Nolan Partners, who've done a lot of kind of marketing jobs and financial jobs, but also increasingly are doing football-related jobs. So they, they placed Dan Ashworth at Brighton, for example. Uh, the... So no, they bring A.D. Boothroyd with them. No snickering. There's nothing... A.D. Boothroyd <laughs> is a nice man. Anyway... United were quite kind of, by all accounts, kept their cars quite close to their chest on that. But the impression was that they did not quite know what they wanted that position to be. So when you have a director of football, it could be like a statesman-like figure, a kind of ambassadorial role, effectively. It could be like a hard-nosed negotiator guy, or it could be something a bit more holistic, someone who ties everything together and oversees the academy, blah, blah, blah. United gave the impression they didn't really know what they were looking for. As recently as kind of late January, someone told me that they still hadn't decided what they wanted. uh, And Ed Woodward earlier this season told someone it would take a couple of years for that appointment to be made which strikes me as being too long you should know who all the major players in that market are you should know who the people are who you could appoint who could do a good job and to be honest United should have an idea of what they want that job to be because the one thing we don't know about Solskjaer at the moment we don't have any proof of is that he's good at recruiting because the recruitment he did at Cardiff not great no the recruitment at Mulder is a different level. It's a different level of play you're looking at. You are basically going into a summer where you are already how many points behind your two fiercest rivals. Well, there's, so there's a recruitment side in terms of yeah. identifying players, and then there's the delivery side, for lack of a better word, which is negotiating and bringing in players at the right price, paying the agents the right commissions, and being able to sell well. well so they- that's something that Woodward's done. Presumably he would continue doing that if there's no director of football. I don't think his record is as terrible as some suggest. No. But it's not great either. But you're also looking at this yet. So this is the fourth time since Fergie left that you are effectively saying to a new manager, who do you want? And that's been then married with the board in inverted commas, with Ed Woodward saying, right, well, actually, we want these guys. Well, they do. Whereas what United need to be looking at in my... I hate telling football clubs what they should be doing, but it just seems sensible to me that, that they would be thinking, right, do you know what, we can't get into this situation again. We need someone who is overseeing this whole process, not just the signing of players. You can farm out the, the contractual stuff and what have you to, to Matt Judge, who does that already. 
you have people within the club who you can farm the, the actual writing of the contracts out to as Arsenal have in Hus Farmy. But you, you need someone who has taken an overview, not just of the transfers, but the academy, the first team, the contractual status, because they've, they've not had that. They are basically the only major club without someone doing something similar to that, it's, except maybe Real Madrid, I guess. Real Madrid's a bit different, but yeah, you have a guy who's a lot more involved and... Real has been a bit of a turnkey operation anyway yeah. it's a, the last couple of years. No one looks at Real Madrid and thinks, do you know what, that is a great way, that's a great blueprint for running a club. Yeah. And I, I just worry that the, Sol- the Solskjaer success, it should have got him the job, but it should not have deprived somebody else of another job because the two jobs are totally unrelated and United still can't seem to grasp that. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. This season, with your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times, you can watch every highlight and every goal from every game in the Premier League. It's just £8 for an eight-week trial. Now, let's move on to our second topic, VAR. I want to take you back to something which I believe you wrote or tweeted, which is that you made the point, and correct me if I'm misinterpreting this, part of the problem that you have not with VAR per se, but with the basic notion that justice is a thing in football, that we should try to 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 deliver justice by getting decisions right. No, I think that's that's fine. Good. So you, you agree with everything to do with VAR? I think VAR... Even offside. I am pro-VAR, but I don't think it's the answer to the problem. What is the problem? The problem is fogginess within the rules, particularly within handball and offside, that I think the rules are wrong. I think we have, we have lost sight, Gab, of the spirit of the laws. My least favourite thing is when people on Twitter, when you refer to the rules, and they say, oh, actually, they're the laws of the game, as though not knowing... But they are, the, they are also, like, they are the rules of the game, with a, with a lowercase r. That is what they are. They are the rules. They're not actual laws. They, they weren't written on tablets and given down from Mount Sinai. So, is that the right mountain? I don't know. It is, man. Anyway, good. Um, I think that we have lost sight of what those rules... Certainly with offside, I'm meant to do. I think the handball rule has become unnecessarily complicated and really over sort of... That just the language that we use to talk about offside is ridiculous. That making your body bigger and... And we just sort of, oh, well, of course, he was making his body bigger. What do you mean he was making his body bigger? Handball, not offside, but yeah. That's hand- no, that's, so that's handball. So offside, I think we've lost the point. Okay, but the reason all these things that you don't like have come in about the increasing volume, now we have the silhouette and stuff like oh, that. Oh, the silhouette. Has to do with the fact that they said, look... We're going to remove more discretion from the referee and from the VAR because that is what gives us in trouble, right? We we don't know whether Otamendi or Kimpembe meant to handle the ball. We do know they gained an advantage from their body position. So we're going to tell people, this is how you defend. 
There's a great example at the end of the Milan derby. Danilo D'Ambrosio. D'Ambrosio, Absolute perfect. If you haven't seen this, the guy basically ties his arm behind his back and throws his whole body in front of the goal-bound shot. No, he's saying, we're going to take this away, and these are the elements that you need to use to decide this. This happens in law all the time, right? You look at precedent, you look at situations, you look at what apply. You've got guidelines, and based on that, you decide whether you're going to go and punish somebody or not. I, I don't understand... The alternative is, oh, well, it has to be intentional. Hey, referee, do you think it was intentional? On what basis do you think it was intentional? Is it your mind-reading abilities? That's all correct, Gab. I can't fault the logic. Um, although I would I would question whether the price that Dino D'Ambrosio paid was worth it. I don't know if it was. That all makes sense. The The problem I have is that I think the week after the Timpembe won, there was a handball, I don't know which game it was in, there was a handball that was very similar, not given, because you are still... Dealing with was it in a Champions League game? No, it was in a Premier League game. Ah, that, but you can't you can't go ah like that because it's not ideal. The whole argument about or one of the whole arguments against VAR, which I stress, I am not against. I am pro VAR. I just think we have a problem with the way we approach the rules. Was that you can't have one way of playing the game differently in the Premier League right. and a different way in at Harrogate Town in the Vanarama, whatever it's called. And that, that everyone sort of said, oh, we've got to keep the link between the grassroots and the you know the Sunday lead and the Premier League. This is nonsense, total nonsense. But that was a powerful argument and one that UEFA adhered to for a long time. Right, but that but went away a long time ago. You can't have separate rules in or laws, sorry, in national leagues and international competitions. Right. That is insane. On the, on 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 this point, the directives, which is what we're talking about, this set of idea of, uh, to to decide how to to interpret this. They come from referees associations. Now, obviously, this specific directive, if Mike Riley were here, we, we would ask him, like... I think he's here in spirit. He's here in spirit. No, he's one of the good guys. Certain other leagues went and they instructed them, we're going to interpret it this way. In Spain, you know, virtually every time the ball touches somebody's hand in the box, it's a penalty. In England, it wasn't. And in the past, we always sort of accepted that, oh, look, there's different things. Well, you know, that's a foul in the Liga. It's never a foul in the Premier League because mm-hmm. real men and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but we are moving towards a game which is actually more similar. So this idea of different refereeing interpretations, this has always been – it's always been one of the things in football. I think with VAR coming into the Premier League, I think it's pretty inevitable that they're going to have to adopt the standard set by UEFA and by IFAB as well. And I think people are just going to have to – to defend differently. They don't all need to be Danilo D'Ambrosio, but... Who's that brave? You know, the Kempembe one, I had a conversation with uh, a former World Cup winning defender who's not a, neither a fan of Paris Saint-Germain nor Manchester United. And he's like, yeah, he turns his head, but he's looking at him when the guy's shooting, so he knows he's about to shoot. And then he turns his head and he's turning his body and he throws his arm out. Like, there's absolutely no need to do that. And this is from his perspective. Yeah. And he did win the World Cup and the treble as well, actually. Um, he also got somebody sent off in a World Cup final. Uh, ah, the Matrix. The Matrix. But I, 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 th- I think the point I'm making is once the rules are clear to everybody, then players adapt to them, right? Yeah. Like the back pass or, or whatever else. Well, yeah, and this is, so this is why I'm not anti-VAR is that there is a, there's a, certainly a, more than eternal truth in that, that that as I think as it's rolled out across more leads that we will see more similarities in the way that the rules are applied and that's good defending will change slightly we'll see that kind of weird motion I would argue that Kimpembe gains an advantage from his body being bigger because as Tuchel said that shot was going miles over and I, I have but he doesn't know that 
No, he doesn't know that. That's true. But then that, again, brings in a degree of subjectivity. Because the nature of gaining an advantage, how do you define gaining an advantage? Because you don't know what's going to happen. So, to you me... make your body bigger so you naturally gain your, an advantage. Make your body bigger. This is a ridiculous phrase. It's a ridiculous phrase. He didn't throw his arm out. But more importantly, Gab, part of the reason that I get frustrated with the subject is because I think it's really reductive to focus on one incident. So, yeah, the Kimpembe one was probably a penalty. It was, it was a, to me, it was a bit borderline, right. but it's probably a penalty. It certainly wasn't the most outrageous decision you've ever seen. The problem I have with VAR is that I think it is highlighting the inconsistencies, both in which the rules are applied and the problems with the rules. And the pe- people I blame for that are all of us. Well, I don't blame us. I blame you, I blame no. Charlie, I blame me, I blame... You know who, you know who I would blame more? The guy who invented the Moviola. Well, you, I mean, you're right that about guy. that. Um, there's a guy named Sassi, I believe, Carlos Sassi. Um, for those who don't know, basically, it's, this dates back to the early 70s in Italy, where every refereeing decision on the equivalent match of the day was, was slowed down to, and later on they had these 3D Im- imaging and whatnot. It was like an early forerunner of uh, and technology. Yeah, no, that's exactly what it was. But with more what, shouting. No, but what I would say, and if you use the collective we of the media... I meant the whole world. I blame to some degree, when you watch a match with commentary... Even if you're a referee, even if you're a natural contrarian, you're inevitably influenced by the first reaction of the co-commentator. And a lot of times, it's an ex-pro who, some of them are very good, some of them less so, almost never referees. Sometimes the referees come on in a little square. And invariably say that the referees are right. But there's been far too much of that recently. So it's a whole rubber stamp committee. But they set the tone, right? And inevitably, they're impacted by their own experiences when they played. I think that's one area where the media that deals with broadcast, because that sets the tone for everything, right? When we watch a match, we say, well, that was a foul. That wasn't a foul. That was never a foul, right? The first draft of history, so to speak, Mm -hmm. that is what influences us. And it's whatever that co-commentator says. Sometimes they say things which are completely absurd, and it sets the tone. And you know what? It sets the tone for the three dudes in the studio afterwards. Which which then... We've all worked with these guys. And not that they're bad people. Just that they're not referees. They often don't have the same independence of thought. And... That then sets the narrative for the editor at the desk and says, like, well, but, you know, they were, they were saying, like, are you sure that was a Rory? But what, what are you doing? You know, and that plants the seed of doubt. And then we end up in this circle well, also, of hell. Newspapers and websites and magazines love controversy because it's a simple sort of binary issue. They love saying, you know, such and such was robbed, such and such was cheated. This was a terrible decision. There's a, here's your villain. Here's your simple narrative. We allow the managers to get away with complaining about things that they shouldn't be complaining about. We've, cr- we've created this situation where we are convinced that referees are doing a terrible job. I think generally referees do a good job, even the referees that I don't like, even the referees that when I, when I see them, I think, oh, my God, you are intensely irritating as a human being. I think generally referees do a good job, but we have created this environment where we've convinced ourselves we have to do as much as possible to get them to make the right decision every single time. And, of course, we should. We should encourage them to get the, the right, right decision. We should use technology to help them where it can. But we should also look at the rules and think, in certain instances, these are not helping. We should look at our reactions and think, do you know what, maybe this whole reaction, this twin demand for common sense and consistency, which are mutually exclusive, those two things you cannot have at the same time within refereeing. It's impossible, because there will be times when consistency is not common sense. 
we are asking too much of them. We're allowing VAR in particular to be subject to some sort of mission creep where it's, it's sort of bleaching into more and more types of decisions. There will obviously be teething problems. I'm not anti-VAR. I think it's a good idea. I think we should give referees as much support as possible. But I think there's a more fundamental issue at stake. Yeah. I had another thing that annoyed me that I wanted to tell you about. Another. Well, maybe you'll remember it in a minute mm. because we, Charlie's telling me we need to move on right, to supporters. Get rid, um, get rid of them immediately. When we talk about supporters, when I, when I introduce this topic, I, I was struck by somebody who exposes at one extreme. Um, he's a chief executive of a big European football club, former chief executive. And he said, football is still so far behind in getting money. There's, you know, the football system revenue is about $35 billion a year. And there are 3.5 billion people around the globe who self-identify as football fans. So we're making an average, you do the maths, we're doing making an average of, of $10. We can get so much more money out of them. I know, probably not a pleasant person. And you're breaking out in hives, even as I describe this. But is it No, it's not. But I was thinking about this and just the idea of getting the balance between the match-going fans who inevitably are going to be restricted geographically to the fact that there's fans everywhere else. And who do you listen to? And how do people... And I'm interested in the concept of how do you become a fan, right? We, we're, all, we're all stuck with this sort of very romantic notion, which is very true for, for a lot of us, um, that we support our local club or a club that we're... We have a family member who was a supporter and it's been passed on to us. Now, that's not the case for you. You betrayed your local club, I believe, Absolutely, right? Yeah. Leeds United. Yeah. Uh, or maybe Harrogate Town. Harrogate Town are flying at the yeah. moment. Yeah. Um, but this is the reality. The match-going fans can only be squeezed so much in terms of ticket prices and whatever else. And is there going to be a tipping point where clubs say, you know what? Our constituency goes way beyond the people who go to the games. We make more money and these guys contribute too. They contribute differently via subscriptions or whatever. They don't make noise on match there, or they might in their living room in Singapore. We don't hear it here at White Hart Lane. But how do you how do you balance that? Is that a, is that a concern? I think if I if I knew the answer to that, I'd be paid a lot more money than I am. Um, I get really annoyed with the delineation of the good type of fan and the bad type of fan. The good type of fan being the match going fan, the bad type of fan being anyone who's a foreigner. And people who only go once a year or people who only go once a lifetime or people who don't go at all, they just stay at home and watch the games on TV. All of the money comes from fans. All right, the, the kind of ticket price thing, the, you know, the, the amount you make at the gate is outmoded. And to be honest, that's a drop in the ocean for clubs now. But when we talk about TV rights and the booming Premier League TV rights, that's all coming because people are buying subscriptions. If people didn't buy subscriptions and then watch the adverts, those TV rights would not exist. The whole the whole edifice is built on fans, on on people wanting to watch. And I find it incredible that, that kind of anyone who goes to stadiums regularly will tell you that the worst people in stadiums are the kind of the fellas in their fifties who make no noise because they just go. They just go into the game because that's what they've always done. They've got their ticket and they, they're paying a load of money for the privilege and they can do what they like. But they've got their ticket, they sit there, they grumble, they are convinced that there is a conspiracy against them. And they, they don't seem, they don't contribute to the atmosphere at all. For atmosphere, you want young people, effectively. Generally, that's, I don't want to slur the old. But you want, the more young, young people you have in a stadium, the louder it will be, because they are likely to be A, noisier, and B, slightly drunker. Um, I get really annoyed with the idea that if you're based abroad, that you're not a proper fan. If you're getting up at like three in the morning in Guangzhou to watch, 
Tottenham or Arsenal or Watford or whatever, you're a fan. That is much more committed than the vast majority of fans in Britain are. That apart from the matchgoers, and to be honest, apart from the like the people who travel with their team, who are probably the most devoted of fans locally, if you're getting up at two, three in the morning, I've got my time zones right to watch your team play football. That is devotion. But what interests me is, I don't know how how many of those are monetizable. So you have your TV subscription. You might buy a couple. You know, might, might buy a shirt. You might buy a scarf. You might buy a bit of paraphernalia, some memorabilia. I remember when a few years ago uh, there was a I think O Globo, the Brazilian newspaper did a study into which team had the most fans worldwide, which we all know the answer to. It's always Flamengo, well, when the global does it. When, just as when, the British, when British firms do it, it's Manchester United, 657 million right. people are Man United fans. Followers, though. I think Followers. Yeah. So Old Lobo, or whoever it was, did it, and the top three were Flamengo, Vasco and Corinthians. And they, they came to that conclusion, or maybe Club America in Mexico, they came to that conclusion, that they, they said, they specified, we have not included people in the Far East who claim to support Manchester United but never go to Manchester. You think, well... That's not really how supported them works anymore, <laughs> is it, guys? You can't just fix it openly to be the answer you want. There will be lots of people in Singapore and in Malaysia and China and, and the States and Canada and, where, and Australia who are paying TV subscriptions which are contributing to the general wealth of football. I think there's probably a lot who don't, to be perfectly honest. I think there's probably a lot of people in the 3.5 billion who are football fans but don't have the money, essentially, to be monetized. So your chief executive's friend's dream of maximising that revenue is, is always going to hit a ceiling because ultimately you could be a massive Man United fan from Indonesia and you're not going to have the money to contribute a vast amount to Manchester United's coffers or football, the football family's coffers. I am interested in this contract and I'm going to sort of bleed seamlessly into our fourth topic um, which is the Super League because... This is an argument that goes back, and I want to expand it to, there was an excellent column in, in the game um, on Monday about how really the, more than ever, it's the super clubs who who run the game. Um, you know, the way they're triangulating right now between UEFA and, and FIFA, the Club World Cup and, and whatever else. Uh, it's an excellent column by me, incidentally. I was going to say, um, yeah. Yeah. I'm waiting for you to mention that. Um, we're getting to the point where the imbalance of resources is just just enormous. Do we just have to accept that this is a byproduct of globalization and figure out ways to to mitigate it, or are there ways to to reverse it or or, or to stop it? You probably can't reverse it. I think the the link is you mentioned how do we become fans, and increasingly, especially. When you can detach yourself from the geography of a football team, if you're a kid in in China or the States or wherever, you're obviously not grown up next to a club. You're not likely to have a family team that's passed down to you. You might, but you you, you might not, and it certainly wouldn't necessarily be as strong. You as pick it would the be. teams that you watch on TV and that are successful. That you watch on TV and that are successful, or that you play with on computer games, which is the main way that a lot right. of that's the first, that's the gateway drug to football. So that then co- means support. But coalesces. you generally don't choose to play with Burnley because no. they're not good and they don't have anybody you've heard of. So you play with Manchester United. Have you ever played FIFA with a professional footballer? It's hilarious. They will not. They're like children. So, it, if you're, are you a gamer, Dan? You, have you played no. computer games? No. I like so. reading books and bettering myself. We all Sometimes like, I play the cello we- <laughs> with Patrick Bamford, <laughs> the privately educated Patrick Bamford. I guarantee you, Patrick Bamford does not game. I can. I, and if you're if you're listening, please set us right. But I'm sure Patrick Bamford does. But if you, if on the rare occasions that I've done it, when you're a kid, you always want to be the best team. 
on, on a computer game right. do you want to win as you get older you tend to go for either for the one you support or, or maybe for one that you find interesting or whatever but professional footballers will only play as the best teams literally every pro- professional footballer plays fifa as barcelona it's extraordinary because they want to win that's their competitive spirit they're kind of like children but that's how kids are increasingly coming to football which means support coalesces around the big teams which means to an extent it is an, ine- in- an inevitable side effect of, glo- of globalisation that the big teams get more supporters therefore get a greater sh- slice of the pie so you're a tiny bit like remember Ian Eyre a few years ago the former uh, Liverpool chief executive how can I forget him who he made the point that the Premier League's overseas mm-hmm. um, TV yep. deal is split evenly between all the club and that's that's a legacy of back in 1992 when you know their overseas rights the value was about 50 quid and so you, nobody cared you've also read The Club by Joshua Robinson yeah I also and the other day at the time yeah John Clegg <laughs> Clegg is very good stop it but he makes the point well people don't tune in to watch Burnley they tune in to watch us yeah so I'm not picking on Burnley but th- that is a I think a tremendous example of a small club, tremendous history, but you know clearly doesn't have the fan base, and it becomes self perpetuating. Mm-hmm. These guys in the Far East, they want to watch Liverpool, they don't want to watch Burnley, they become Liverpool fans. You agree that it's it's inevitable. What can be done to mitigate it? I don't agree that a super league is inevitable. I think it's inevitable that the big clubs become bigger and that there is a greater disparity of resources. And I don't think that's a good thing. Well, sorry, you say super league isn't inevitable, but. We have Andrea Agnelli, the head of the European Clubs Association. There's his wet dream version of it, mm-hmm. which, you know, in I think there's been enough leaks about this, but it involves a Champions League that you don't actually qualify for, right? You you get relegated out of. So mm-hmm. if, if Leicester City had, if that, if that scheme had been in place when uh, Leicester City won the Premier League, they wouldn't have been in the Champions League. No, they would have, would have been in Europa League 2 with a chance to get promoted up into the Champions League two years down the line, by which point they would have sold Conte and Mares and everybody else and whatever, you would have groups of eight so they could play each other 14 times and you would probably had an even steeper revenue allocation going to the bigger clubs. These are profit-making entities, right? And especially with financial fair play. There's the whole notion about, oh, look, football owners of football clubs are these patrons who lose money. No, they're not. Most of them make money. Most Premier League clubs make money. European clubs on aggregate made, I think, close to half a billion last season, um, whereas before financial fair play, they were losing close to $2 billion. So with that landscape, those guys have returns and they have investors and whatever else, and they're going to say, we contribute more to the pie, and it becomes almost a self-perpetuating circle, right? Well, the interesting one is, is what happens when the Champions League is up for renegotiation in, I think, 2021, because UEFA have, to bring this properly around full circle, UEFA have said there are no more places going to be guaranteed for the, the bid four or bid five leagues. 2024. It's 2024. And that's, well, that's like, because they extended the memorandum of understanding last month, which was ex- due to expire in 2022. And they've extended to 2024, which is interesting because that's also when the international match calendar comes up. And that is when everything could change. Mm. And, you know, that's when you could start having games on weekends, which obviously would have a, probably wouldn't be welcomed by league football and many other people. Uh, That's when the whole scenario could change. That's when they could create, I mean, they did this in European basketball, right? When the the big clubs started saying, well, yeah, we'll give you licenses to be in here, you know, 10-year licenses which get renewed or or whatever else. Um, 
until now, when you brought this up with like folks of the Premier League, they'd be like, oh, no, 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 our clubs, you know, our Premier League is so lucrative. Premier League was a big bulwark against it, right? Mm -hmm. But Premier League, a lot of people don't quite notice that the last Premier League rights deal was less for the first time it actually went down. And I wonder if this is something we should be more aware of or maybe get more involved in. I think the likelihood is, and I don't know, you'll know more about this than I do, the likelihood to me has always been that there would be some sort of version on continental Europe of a cross-border competition between the elite with the Premier League standing apart for the, for, for the, for the first phase, because the Premier League is what... The, the, re- the, the impetus for all of the, the continental European clubs is obviously, as you say, to maximise revenues, but it's also partly because of the gap to the Premier League. So I would still think the Premier League is, is a bulwark against it, not that the Premier League is a force for good or anything like that. The way to mitigate it to me, initially, and it may not stop it in the long run, I would like to see smaller cross-border leagues given a chance to help. I wrote that column like 10 years ago. I know. I was a visionary. You were a visionary. I've, ri- I've written it as well, not maybe 10 years ago, but I would like to see, not the, Atl- the, the, the Atlantic League with a random selection of countries was a stupid idea, but I'd like to see it trial. Random, they all were all on the Atlantic. Uh, Nor- is Norway? No, the, the Atlantic League was Portugal, Scotland, Belgium, and Holland. Where's the Dutch border with the Atlantic? It's water. It all you 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 can you can. What do you think it is? It's, it's, it's the Channel. It's, the it's just channel. a different name. It's still the Atlantic. It's not the Atlantic. It's the Channel and the the North Sea. It's anyway. not like it's a separate sea, Rory. It's, what's so the Pacific? Uh, There's four the oceans. Pacific, yeah, yes? the Pacific and the Atlantic are the same thing. So you could call it the, the Indian. Pacific, Atlantic, Indian, and Antarctic. There are four oceans. So you right? could call it the you Indian Ocean. You have to be Ocean, in one of those. No, you can't because that's a different ocean. You have to go through the Atlantic to get to the Atlantic Ocean. Ergo, this is part of the Atlantic. Don't like, be silly. The North Sea is part of the Atlantic. That doesn't make any sense to me. That's like saying all. that like, if you're in East Anglia, oh, you're not in England, you're in East Anglia. It's part of the Atlantic but Ocean. But if you're in East Anglia, you're not looking at the Atlantic, are you? It's got nothing to do with the Atlantic. <laughs> I'm, using a, I'm using a geographic example. Anyway. Anyway, I think that was a, a strange idea. I'd like to see it trialled in Scandinavia, where I think they, they have tried it in women's football. Yep. Uh, and Belgium and Holland. Belgium and Holland. Which I think, though, then they abandoned for women's league. And like, UEFA have, listed, have lifted restrictions on this. They've so this set is, the precedent. The, that, to me, is a way of just redressing the balance a little bit, given if you, if you start it in countries where there would be no... In, in Scandinavia, there would be no fan problems in, in Holland I had and Belgium. a suggestion for a Balkan league. That would be... Greece, a bit, Turkey, oh. Croatia, and Serbia. Yeah, boy. That is, that's a lot of derbies. The, if you try, I, I would like to see that given a chance, because I think if you combine those markets, you could potentially get... Holland and Belgium mass, together yeah. could, could be a TV market worth roughly the same as, say, France. That gives them a chance to compete as well. I think that is the, the natural next phase. And by the way, I always bring this back to basketball because when the Super League discussion came up, when it was leaked by Der Spiegel's part of football leagues, you know, they, they had the list of the clubs in there. And for those who don't know, who aren't big basketball fans, back in 2000, that's exactly what happened. The big European club says, you know what? We're going to form our own competition instead of playing in what the equivalent of the Champions League but it was called the European cup back then and, and they formed they formed the Euro League in which they're shareholders the clubs are actual shareholders and they have licenses and there's requirements in terms of airports and stadiums and, and stuff like that and it has been very successful and the way a lot of clubs fought back against this was they created regional leagues there there is actually a league made up of former of former Yugoslavian countries there's a league involving Russia, various Baltic republics, and I think Poland as well. They have tried that, 
And what happened in basketball was immediately you said, oh, you can't move outside the system. We'll ban you forever. We'll ban you from the Olympics and this and that. Yeah, okay. They tried to. So they said, no, you can't enroll in your domestic league. And then eventually they had to give up. Now, football is different. You know, FIFA is more powerful than FIBA was back then. The landscape is different. But that's the threat, isn't it? That is why we're all always going to keep inching in that direction. I think it will be a slow process, partly because the first club to put their head above the parapet and say, we want this, we are pulling out of our domestic league. The reaction from fans pretty much everywhere, I think, would be one of splenetic fury. And I well, think no, They're not going to say we'll pull out. We're going to play in our domestic league. We're going to pull out of the Champions League and we'll play in, in this new Super League that we created on, on midweeks. We'll still, we, we still want to play the domestic league. And then it's up to the domestic league to kick them out. Yeah which is what you know, FIFA and UEFA would then ask them to do it if the basketball model is followed. <laughs> All I want to point out is that Barcelona, Bayern, and Real Madrid are members of uh, EuroLeague basketball, and they're also you know, three of the seven or eight super clubs that obviously run world football, so, or world club football. So they have experience of doing this. Then They know what the They've been the there. They've done yeah. that. The blueprint is there. We need to wrap up, Rory. Um, I've really enjoyed this. Thank you, thank you. I, I hope you'll consider coming back if we can up your if we can up your fee. And uh, it's funny because Rory came. Did you go upstairs and, and say hello to all your former colleagues? No, no, no. You're still persona non grata. Yeah, they don't like me anymore. Yeah, no, yeah. I didn't think so. Yeah, I, I saw you fiddling around, but you're obviously without a key card. You couldn't get into the lift. Anyway, thank you so much to Roy K. Smith. Obviously, you can go and read his excellent work in the New York Times. I have a subscription to the New York That's Times. That's good to hear. It's money well spent. It really is. Now, remember, you can subscribe to the Times, and you also get the Sunday Times, to enjoy award-winning journalism online or on your smartphone or tablet. I haven't made the joke that when I say tablet, I don't mean like those stone slabs, so I'll make that here. We don't mean, unfortunately, it's not available on the uh, stone slabs, but um, it's more like your your iPad, basically. One pound a week for an eight-week trial. Definitely money well spent. Search the Times subscription for more information. If you want to read the New York Times, feel free to use Rory's login, which is rorykcsmith at gmail.com, and his password is Harrogate. We'll be back on Thursday uh, with two of the top three meeting in Anfield, Liverpool versus Tottenham. Mm. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk.